My name is Ross. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and it's a great privilege to be with you today. We're going to be in John chapter 15, if you've got your Bibles. Uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of John as we are making our way towards Easter in a few weeks. And um, you can find out all the information about our Easter services at all of the campuses on our website, and uh, but want you to make plans to join us for those events and to bring folks along with you. It's a great opportunity, great time of the year to do that. All right, so John 15, and uh, I'll tell you what we're going to be talking about this morning. I want to talk this morning about um, a theological term. And so some of you I know, you think, oh gosh, okay, great, I get to turn this off catch up on my bracket results for the uh, basketball, but but hang with me because I think, um, and I'm not alone in this, I mean, good night, I I'm, I'm stand on the shoulders of, of 2,000 years of people that have been teaching God's Word, but we're talking this morning about union with Christ, and um, there is no real way to overemphasize how important our union with Christ is. Give you a couple of uh, quotes from some theologians, old theologians. One's a John Murray, and he wrote this that the union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's, it's the central truth. It's, it's the central um, priority in understanding what our relationship with Christ is, is supposed to be and meant to be and can be for so many believers. Um, the New Testament... Uh, let me say it this way. Jesus never says about his followers, he, he never calls them Christians. Paul never calls the followers of Christ Christians. How he denotes and the language that is used in John's Gospel and in Paul's writings uh, about who we are as believers, how we're identified is, is by uh, two terms that are almost identical, but they're always used together and interchangeably. The New Testament says, John will say, Paul will say, Jesus will say, if you're a believer, you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. He is not out there. He is not separate from you. He is not someone who did something in uh, days long past. He is here and now, and you are in Him, and He is in you. John Calvin, at the beginning of his third volume of the Institutes, which I firmly believe he wrote the first two volumes for the purpose of writing the third volume. And he says this, and don't be freaked out, it's not about election. You know, everybody freaks out about Calvin. That's the first two volumes. Third volume is this one. That's what he says. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from Him, all that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. For us to share with um, uh, what Jesus has received from the Father, He had to become ours and to dwell within us. For this reason, He's called our head, the firstborn among many brethren. We're also in turn said to be engrafted into Him and to put on Christ. So as I said, all that He possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with Him. It is 
true that we obtain this by faith. That, that our identity in Christ, in Christ in us, is the most important thing for you to grasp hold of as a believer. Jesus is going to talk to us about that this morning, and I think He's going to speak into something that we need a great correction of in our thinking and in our culture and in our, the world around us. There's a guy named Christian Smith. He's an American sociologist. He, he writes about what he calls American theology or cultural theology. And, and, and he sums it up in one word, and it's called moral, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And it is all around us. And, and unless we're intentional about not having this view, it's our default view. And so he says, here's the creed for moralistic, therapeutic deism. One, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Most emerging adults, he says, assume that at the end of the day they are the master of their life, the creator and former and maker of their identity and their religion. As individuals, we believe that we are the ones that determine what is right, worthy, and important, so we can pick and choose from religion or whatever else. And to take or leave what we want or do not want. See, what Christian Smith has diagnosed is a culture um, that believes that life is like a choose-your-own-adventure book. You ever read those when you were little? They begin this way, beware and warning. This book is different from other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. There are dangers and choices and adventures and consequences. You must use all your numerous talents and much of your emotion, uh, enormous intelligence. The wrong decision could end in disaster, even death. But don't despair. At any time, you can go back and make another choice and alter the path of your story and change its results. See, I think too many people live their life like a choose-your-own-adventure. Smith concludes, he says, emerging adults want God to be more than a butler. They want Him to be a convenient, though distant, deity. In conformity to their ideologies that reduce the need for faith and elevate personal preference and fulfillment. So faith is sectored off or compartmentalized and faith gets reduced to a necklace one wears around their neck as part of their self-made identity rather than putting on Christ as a whole new set of clothes and a new identity being found in Him. Now read one more quote and then we'll get to the passage because we've got a lot of passages to do here it's a hard passage, and uh, we'll spend some time there. But Rankin Wilborn says in his book, he says this, Union with Christ is the song we need to recover and hear today as, as the heart of the gospel. 
The song of grace without union with Christ becomes impersonal. A cold calculus that will leave you cynical. The song of discipleship without union with Christ becomes joyless duty. A never-ending hill that can leave you exhausted. But union with Christ holds together what so many of us are struggling to hold together. It allows us to sing the song of grace that asks nothing of us to love us. Amazing grace. And at the same time demands everything from us. My life, my soul, my all. So this morning, I want us to see what Jesus has to say. This is the one of the passages where Jesus Himself will instruct us, as John records it, about what it means to have union with Him, about what it means to abide in Him. So I'm in John chapter 15, and I'm reading, beginning in verse 1. I have scheduled to do the whole chapter today, um, but that... But Texas Tech plays basketball at five, and so we won't be able to get to all of it. But we'll get through the first 11 verses. Next week, I'll, I'll catch us up in a paragraph or two. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full or complete. Bless the word of the Lord. In the first couple of verses, what Jesus does is He introduces a metaphor. And this metaphor is full of meaning, and, and at the same time, the metaphor, like all metaphors, will break down if it is pressed too far. The truth that a metaphor illustrates is greater than the metaphor. And Jesus will say, he begins and says, I am the vine. And then he says about the Father, he is the vine dresser, or the gardener, or the farmer. And branches, well, branches are meant to bear fruit. And they are distinguished by whether they bear fruit or not. And he introduces the branches by calling them branches in me. And we find that the vine dresser, the, the father, the gardener, he takes away branches that don't bear fruit, and he prunes branches that do bear fruit so that they'll bear more fruit. And when Jesus says he's the vine, he's drawing upon 
Old Testament imagery where Israel is referred to the vine, the, the vine of God, the vineyard of God. And you can find this in Isaiah chapter 5 or Psalm 80 or Ezekiel 15. And you can read those this afternoon. The Father's the vine dresser. He tends the vineyard. He ensures its production. Clears away what is dead. And He seeks to maximize life and fruit. And branches are either alive or they're dead. They either produce fruit or they don't. So, how does a branch produce fruit? Well, in verse 2, it is those branches who do not produce fruit that the Father takes away. Now, branches is simple. It's a, it's a shoot, it's a, it's a sprout, it comes off of a tree or a bush or, or a vine. And the purpose of them is to bear fruit. Now, the branch has no fruit in and of itself. The branch gets the fruit from the vine. It is nourished by the vine. It is, it is organic. It is connected in a way that the life of the vine goes into the branch and culminates in or produces fruit. To take it away would mean you remove it. You cut it away. You cut it off. Okay. In verse 3, he says, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. We'll talk about that at the end because I think that's the hardest verse in this passage, and I'll tell you why. Now, to abide means to remain, to, to stay in, to be part of. In verse 4, there's the key to bearing fruit. You must abide in Christ as a branch abides in the vine because the branch can't bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Unless the branch is nourished and gets its life from and is made alive by. It's the vine's fruit, not the branches. And a branch must abide in the vine to experience life-giving, fruit-producing nourishment from the vine. Note, so in verse 5, he'll say again, I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now notice the last clause of this, though. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding is necessary for life. Branches that are abiding are part of the vine. To be apart from is to be separate from or to be by yourself or to exist separately or on your own and you can't bear the fruit of the vine because you're not connected to the vine. You're not being nourished by the vine. The life of the vine is not coming into you because you're apart from it. You're separate from it. That's what he's saying. And then he'll say, if you do not abide, then you do not bear fruit. And in verse 6, you're thrown away like a branch and you wither and you're gathered up with the other branches and you're thrown into the fire and you're burned. Okay. Who are the branches that do not bear fruit? In verse 2, and then you see their fate in verse 6. They are taken away, cut off in verse 2, and they are destroyed in verse 6. There are three ways to interpret this passage. I will tell you two ways that I don't take in the beginning. And then I will tell you a third way that I do take that I think the text supports. The first is um, a way to take this passage is that the branches are believers who lose their salvation because they do not abide. And it's usually spoken of as them being guilty of apostasy. But I think John is clear in this Gospel as he labors over what Jesus says that that cannot be the case. In John 3, he says, 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. In John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In John 6, Jesus will say it even more emphatically. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Then two verses later, this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that's been given to me, but raise it up in the last day. And I'll give you one more in John chapter 10, 28 and 29. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It is the strongest possible statement about the security of the believer. If you are a believer, you cannot be lost. If you are a believer, you cannot lose your salvation. Nothing can snatch you out of His hand. He loses nothing. Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. The second way to take this, and I do not take this, I, do not, I don't think this is the interpretation here, is that the branches are believers who, through unfaithfulness and disobedience, will face a judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us about that. And what will happen is, is that at that judgment, which is the judgment seat of Christ for believers, at the judgment for rewards, they will have their life examined and their works examined, and it will be concluded that they built nothing in their life on the foundation of Jesus. They built only on their own foundation. And it will go, everything about their life will go through the purifying fire, and at the end of it, nothing will be left. Yet they will be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10-17, and I call that the smoking butt verse. Be in heaven, people will be like, you smell like smoke. But yeah, didn't build my life on the foundation of Jesus. So I'm in the smoking section. I don't think that is what Jesus is talking about here for two reasons. One, because that is um, that is a distinction or a revelation that is given to Paul that we see in his letters. In John's Gospel, that's not the distinction John makes. That's not the distinction John, as he records Jesus, that's not the distinction. that John is making. John makes this distinction. And this is what I think the branches are. They get taken away. They are branches that don't bear fruit because they are not believers to begin with. And I'm going to argue for that. One, the first thing to remember is that there is a ground zero test case for this very profile. A branch in me that does not produce fruit. And his name is Judas. 
And when this started, this upper room discourse in chapter 13, verse 1, which goes all the way to chapter 17, Judas is there and Jesus goes to wash feet. And you remember where where Peter says, Oh no, you're not going to wash my feet. And so Jesus says, If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then Peter says, well, in that that case then, wash my hands and my head also. To which Jesus says, no, 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 you're already clean. You just need to have your feet washed. But not all of you are clean. And he's speaking of Judas. And then in chapter 13, verse 30, After Jesus tells Judas what you are to do, do quickly. Judas leaves, and John, very specific, goes out into the dark. Now, Judas looked and acted and sounded no different from the other disciples. The other disciples had no idea about Judas until after the events unfolded. It wasn't until after all the actions came to light that they realized Judas was with them, but was not one of them. In a sense, you might say it this way, he was in Jesus' name and in the fellowship of Jesus' disciples, but there's another sense in which Judas was apart from them. He was separate from them. He was by himself. He was for himself. And even if there was ministry that Judas may have done being known as and in the company of Jesus. It was not fruit-bearing ministry. doesn't mean that the world or you or I or the other disciples wouldn't have looked at it and said, well, Judas is doing some good things. But if it is not a life nourished by the vine, it is not fruit from the vine. So Judas fits the profile of a branch that in many ways appeared to be in him but wasn't really in him. But he's not the only one. There are disciples that prove to not be disciples. You can go to John chapter 6. We looked at it a few weeks ago. And, and gee, they come. There's a whole group of people and they're coming because Jesus is doing miracles and he, he, he fed 5,000, which means he, he essentially... You know, gave everybody bread. And so then they come back, do we want some more bread? We like that bread. You're good at miracles. We like that. So then Jesus does a very Jesus thing. He kind of reigns on their parade. He says, okay, well, actually, here's what you need to know. I'm the bread of life. And um, if you want to live and you want to be my disciple, uh, believing in me, um, here's what you have to do. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to abide in me. And it's interesting that there are more disciples at the beginning of the chapter than at the end of the chapter. And they say, this is too hard. What, what do you mean you say something like this? It's too, it's too hard. It ends by saying many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. They had a belief. Their their belief was miracle-seeking. But it wasn't belief in Jesus as a Savior. John even speaks of believers who prove to not really be believers because they don't know what they're believing in. They're not believing in what Jesus is saying, believe in. You see it in John 8. There's a similar link as in John 6. There were Jews that had believed in Him. And so, to those Jews that believed in Him, Jesus said, If you abide, abide, now again, in My Word, you're truly My disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here's the problem. 
they go and say, well, wait a minute. I mean, you're a good miracle worker, and you got a lot of wisdom, and you're a great teacher, but we don't need to be set free. We're just fine. Don't you know our father's Abraham? We grew up in the synagogue. We went to Jewish Awana. We got all that stuff. Man, we did DNA.com and, and we're Jews. To which Jesus says, You seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Do you believe that you don't need me? You don't believe that you are hopeless without me. You're still counting on other things. They were not believers for Jesus in salvation. Jesus' word was life. That is where they were to abide. Which meant their whole worldview had to be shifted and shaped by this man who claimed to be God and declared that apart from Him, you have no hope and you can do nothing and you can know nothing. Apart from Him, you cannot know God. Those are the branches that will get gathered up, that will be cut off and gathered up they'll wither they'll be thrown into the fire and they'll burn now who are the branches that do bear fruit and what does it mean that they are pruned well every branch that does not bear fruit every or every branch that does bear fruit every true disciple he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, do you know what pruning means? It means to cut. Which that's very sobering. You would think, if you do bear fruit, then you get a star. You get an A. You pass the class. <laughs> if you bear fruit, you get pruned. Hebrews 12 helps us understand a portion of what this means. Listen to this. The Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained. In the context of Hebrews 12, the discipline is happening because of persecution. In later here in John 15, which we're not going to get to, but Jesus will say in verse 20, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. Now, persecution is not the only way the Father cuts and prunes a branch, but it is one way. There are also other ways. There external, they come from the outside. Maybe it's sickness or a diagnosis or it's loss or it's grief. Or it's depression. Or it's a relationship that causes great pain. And what Jesus wants His disciples to know, what He wants us to know, is that our union with Him, us and Him and He and us, it, it is not separate from or isolated from those things that are external. 
rather the external things, these pruning things, they influence our abiding. And He wants us to know the Father. He's the vine dresser. He's the one that governs and oversees and is sovereign over all of these things. Persecution or hardship or calamity or disappointment or heartbreak. They don't come to you as a branch on a whim or by accident. And they're not aimless. And it's not random. It is the work of the fine fine dresser. It is the work of your heavenly Father. And the purpose is so that you will produce more fruit. Which means our experience with Jesus, abiding in Him and He in us, gets energized and enlivened intensified by those things the Father controls that come into our life. And that nothing comes into our life that has not first gone through His hand. Now, Give you a picture of how this works in first and second Corinthians chapter one. Paul says this. We were so utterly burdened that we We were so burdened beyond our strength. Felt like we're being crushed. We felt like we were gonna die, like all the air in the atmosphere was being sucked away and we were suffocating. But, he says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises by the pruning He took even to the point of death. I want to show you something that's very important. So, if, you're, if you've been asleep, it's time to wake up. You don't want to miss this. Verse 3. This is maddening to me. Alright, verse 2. You know what verse 2 says? You don't bear fruit. You get cut off. You do bear fruit. You win the pruning prize. You're the... You're, I'm the vine, you're the branch. If you bear fruit, you get pruned. You could go straight to verse 4 where it says, so, and he's commanding, abide in me. So I'm the vine, you're the branch. Bear more fruit, you, get, you bear fruit, you get pruned, you bear more fruit. So abide in me and I in you. So he has this metaphor and it's working. And then in verse 3, he just says, Already you're clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And you sit there and you look and go, That makes makes absolutely no sense, Jesus. Except that he's Jesus and you know it does make sense. But how? Well, let me say this. The word for pruning and the word for clean are almost identical words. The Father prunes, that is, He cleans the branches to make them more suitable. Jesus had already said, like I said, to Peter in John 13, You are clean. And the only reason to wash your feet is because you've already been cleansed 
But here's the point. The disciples are already clean. They are already completely clean. They are already pruned. They're already made suitable. Yet, they are to be cleaned and they are to be pruned. We can't reject that. We, we receive that. Because here's the point. You have already been made clean and fit and um, pruned and approved because of the Word I spoke to you. So the Word here is, is Jesus' whole message of that I am the Son of God and I've come in the flesh and I've, I am without sin and I die for my sheep and I will rise from the dead. And believing that Word is what connects you to Christ and joins you to Him as a branch. So when you get to verse 4 and He commands that we abide in Him, abide in me, this is how we receive the command. This is how we receive the imperative. It is something we must do, but it is only something we can do because it's already been done. Abide in me. Why? Because you abide in me. You've been made clean. You've been connected to me because of the Word that I gave you. You're already clean because of the Word. And as the Father prunes and cleanses and fits, you abiding in me is my command to you to become what you already are. And that's in me. And I in you. And you will not come to judgment. You've already passed from death to life. And this is so radically different than a choose-your-own-adventure approach. Because it's this contrast between a definition of what I think true life is and what God defines true life is. See, in my book, I'm going after what I want. I, I want to take advantage of every opportunity that, that I can make my life more exciting and more prosperous and more comfortable. And it's me turning to any page I want and choosing to steer my life into anything I want it to be. But the reality of God's story is this. He's called us to a hope and a meaning and a life and a joy that we could have never found on our own. And we long for an ending that we can't get to on our own because we're held captive and enslaved by sin and we're held hostage and His eternal Son came to rescue us and save us and lead us home. And God desires for us to become who we are in Christ through His Spirit. And we do that by abiding. What does it mean to abide in the vine? How do you abide? Look at verse 11 again. And then I'm going to illustrate this, and then we're going to go home. Or to discover Bethel. These things I have spoken to you. All these things. The metaphor, the abiding, that you're clean... These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I've told you all of this 
so that you would, by abiding, enjoy with my joy. That my joy would be as your joy. I I instructed you about abiding in me so that you would enjoy all that I enjoy with the joy in which I enjoy it. It means the reason your joy can be complete is because in union with Jesus, you no longer enjoy merely with your own joy. You enjoy with His joy. And as the Father prunes you so that you become more attached to the vine and more nourishment comes through you and so that there's more fruit and much fruit that the Father's working out here in the, in the pruning and the cleansing so that you're more abided, you're more connected, you're more nourished because God the Father is doing everything He's doing so that you would enjoy with the joy of Jesus. He wants the infinite, perfect, pure, glorious joy of Jesus to be what you enjoy with. And abiding in the love of Jesus and the Father is to keep on enjoying being loved. And to love with their love. Let me illustrate this. Rankin Wilborn tells a story in his book called Union with Christ. And he says this. Most of us have wondered at one time or another if we were switched at birth. Are those really my parents? Now imagine your parents are mean and critical and that you've always been a disappointment to them and they to you. But then one day you find a a dusty old trunk in the attic and you quietly pick the lock and open the trunk and discover papers that prove you had, in fact, been abducted as a baby. These aren't your parents after all. They're criminals. Then you discover that your real mom was a painter at the Sorbonne in Paris. And that your real dad was a Nobel Prize winning scientist and a professional baseball player. And you say to yourself, of course this explains everything. I am extraordinary. I knew it all along. You also read that they're fabulously wealthy and have a lavish inheritance waiting for you. It's a fantastic story, but you get it. Such a discovery would cause you to reinterpret everything about your life. Where you came from, your true identity, your capacities and capabilities, the resources available to you, your future and your destiny. After that day, your life would never be the same. You would come down from that attic with new eyes for everything and for everyone. Your whole life would feel new and changed and invigorated. But here's the thing. It had always been true. It was the truth underlying your life even before you discovered it. It was rooted in your history and you had the DNA to prove it. It was true while it was hidden from your sight, but it didn't change your life until your eyes were opened to it. Union with Christ. Abiding in Christ and He abiding in you tells you a new story about who you are. You're in Christ. And you too have been given a new identity. God called you into a new life. 
rooted in a history that predates you, anchored in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and you discover who you are in Christ, and you have the DNA to prove it. He's the Holy Spirit. You see, you once were lost, but now you are found in Him. And as you abide, you more and more and more will become who you are in Him. And this doesn't happen by thinking that Jesus is someone who lived a long time ago out there and did some things way back then over there. That right now, He is in you. You are in Him. And so you seek Him in His Word. And you seek Him by prayer through the Spirit. And you remind yourself, the Bible over and over, remember, 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 you remind yourself, I am in Christ and He is in me and that is my identity. That is who I am. And that you would find your nourishment by abiding in Him. And you would forsake all of those other places you go to abide. You would trust Him. I'm going to close in prayer. On the other side of this wall, we have elders that are there. And you want to talk to somebody, pray with somebody, they're there. They're there to talk with you. So if you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for inspiring John to beloved disciple that knew Jesus so intimately and that you inspired him with words and you made fresh his memory to write these things down for us. And so, Father, I think of this morning those in here that have only a cultural or moralistic or therapeutic idea or understanding about who you are and why you sent your Son, Jesus, and He's not some mere add-on to our life to, in, to enrich some parts of it, but that to be in Christ and to be a believer and to, and to know what it is that we would never be snatched out of your hands. That their eyes would be open to the reality that He is life. 